0: Stories, fables, ghostly tales. The Shadow on the Blind by Louisa Baldwin Harbleton Hall had stood empty for seven years. For seven years no smoke had issued from its chimneys, telling of the cheerful hearth within. No voice of laughter had been heard under its roof. No footsteps coming or going across its threshold. A straggling growth of ivy, and Virginia creeper that covered the walls and veiled the windows made the front of the house look as forlorn and neglected as the face of a sick man who has grown a ragged beard during a long illness. The window sills were green, with the drip of rain from the spouts choked with decaying leaves and the brickwork was stained with dark patches of damp. The birds had built their nests undisturbed in every gable and projection of the roof, and in the wide chimney secure from danger of being smoked out of their comfortable quarters. And within the house, though man had withdrawn his presence from it, other tenants were in possession, rats and mice. Held revels in the empty rooms as passages that resounded with the patter of their feet, the squeak of their voices, and the nibbling of their teeth. In the dead of night, bold as they had grown, they scared themselves by catching in wires that set bells ringing and echoing through the house, and an army of rats would rush helter skelter down the great staircase. Bouncing over one another's backs in their panic, as we see them depicted in illustrations of the famous history of Whittington and his cat. If desolation reigned in Harbledon Hall, its gardens were returning to a state of savage nature, and the rank growth of weeds choked and overtopped the flowers and shrubs. No seeds had been sown, no lawns mown no hedges clipped or tree or bush pruned in seven long years, and the once orderly gardens had become a tangled thicket where the fairy prince might seek the sleeping beauty. A bramble has sprung up by the sundial, antsy clasping in its thorny arms, threw its branches about it, effectively hiding it from the light of day. The stone basin of the disused fountain had become a nursery of young frogs that hopped, swam, and croaked undisturbed, and nature was endeavouring to re-establish her sway where man had withdrawn his cultivating and restraining hand. It was a radiant day in June. The hot sun poured down on the tangled overgrowth in the gardens of Harbleton Hall. The birds were in a perfect riot of song, and a southwest wind rocked them, on the bow. Even the old forsaken house on such a day wore its least sombre aspect. One could imagine there had been happy household life within its walls, and it was possible to conceive that they might again resound the laughter and voices of children at play. Some such thought as this must have entered the mind of an elderly gentleman driving by in an open carriage with his wife, a pale grey-haired lady seated beside him. Mr. Stackpool was a cheerful, energetic man of 60 years of age, of strong likes and dislikes and sudden impulses, as he caught sight of the wide front of Harberton Hall with its red gables glowing in the sun, its confused mass of creepers almost hiding the lower stories from view. He told the coachman to draw up, at the iron gates at the entrance. This is a very picturesque house, my dear. I should like to have a look at it, he said to his wife. It may be the kind of place we are in search of. And he alighted from the carriage as nimbly as a young man to read the notice painted on the weather stained board fastened to the gates. For admission to view these premises, Applied to Mr. John Sexton by the church. Mr. Stackpole returned to the carriage and bade the coachman drive to the church, the tower of which they could see embowered among trees, apparently not more than a quarter of a mile distant. As they drove, he continued, I like the look of the place very much. I am sure I could do something with it. I should just enjoy sitting to work upon it, to call order out of chaos, and in six months I would undertake to effect an entire transformation in the house and grounds and make it one of the prettiest places in the neighbourhood. What do you think, my dear? The frail-looking elderly lady thus addressed, made by a faint rejoinder, and her husband's sanguine enthusiasm by no means communicated itself to her, Hubberton Hall was the sixth old house to which Mr. Stackpole had taken a fancy in the last ten years, and fallen out of love with as quickly, after exercising his ingenuity in putting into perfect order and living in it for a short time. It was his diversion, now that he'd retired from business and had nothing particular to do, to hunt up old country houses. Put them in thorough modern repair and working order, live in them just long enough to induce his wife to hope that he had pitched his tent finally, when the demon of unrest would break out in him once more, and he was off again on the old quest. This hunting of houses, catching them, and then letting them go, that he might pursue game of the same kind elsewhere, was naturally more entertaining to Mr. Stockpool. Than it could be to his wife and daughter. But the elderly lady was patient and philosophic, and when her daughter said petulantly, Oh, Mama, what a shame it is that we have to be dragged about the country like this! We have not been a year in this lovely house, and Papa is tired of it already, and looking out again for some tumbled down old place to put that in good order, and leave it too, I suppose, Mrs. Stackpole would say, Papa must do what he thinks is best. The excitement and interest he finds in frequently changing house are necessary to him now that he has done with business. And remember, my dear, he has no occupations to pass the time like you and I have. But Ella Stackpole was now married and settled in a home of her own, and the only other child, a son, was stationed with his regiment in Malta. Therefore, it was that, when Mr. Stackpole became suddenly interested in the appearance of Hamilton Hall, his wife was unable to feel any enthusiasm on the subject. Their last home had been in Cornwall, where after six months spent in its most westerly corner, Mr. Stackpole discovered what everyone else had always known, that he was in a decidedly rainy part of England. He could scarcely have been more astonished at the quantity of rain that fell in it if it had been Egypt and he fled to London to make that his headquarters, while he looked about for an old house to suit his fancy in the drier country of Surrey. And on this bright June day, he and his wife were driving through the fair country house hunting, and the more dilapidated a house looked, provided that his experienced eye saw capacities of improvement about it, the more attractive it appeared to Mr. Stackpole as affording wider scope for his particular form of genius. His was a costly hobby, and strangers reaped the benefit of his lavish outlay on houses he perfected, tired of, and left so soon. Mr. Judge the sexton, was found without difficulty, for indeed he was a conspicuous object, sitting in a large armchair by his cottage door, reading the newspaper, and taking an occasional sip from a glass of cold brandy and water that stood beside him on the window sill, He was a person of dignity in the village, accustomed to waste his own time and that of others, but Mr. Stackpole hurried him off to the carriage as soon as he had found the keys, and compelled him to unwanted activity. The garden be a wilderness, sir, said the old man, opening one of the great iron gates. And it's four years since here, an inquiry... Was made about the place. It wouldn't be to everyone's taste, you see. It'll need a considerable outlay upon it before it's fit for habitation," said Mr. Stackpole complacently as he stooped to disentangle a briar from his wife's skirt. "Who were the last tenants, and how long had they lived here?" He said, turning to the old man and asking two questions at once. "Sir Oland Shaw and his family had at last, sir." They took the place on a 21-year lease, and they left uncommon sudden when it had five years and more to run. There was a deal-o'-talk about what made him leave in that way, and Judd opened wide the front as he spoke, and they entered a large lofty hall smelling mouldy as though there were vaults below. Folks did say there was reasons more than what they'd own up to for a large family to turn out all of a sudden as if they were running away from the plague, and the old sexton looked mysterious as though he longed to be questioned. Mr. Stackpole, however, was too much interested in pacing the length of the dining room to notice any hints he might throw out. My dear, he said to his wife, who was resting on the low window seat, we will have the whole of this oak floor polished and Turkish rugs laid down at intervals. That is just what we did in our house in Cumberland. And if you remember, you were not pleased with it when it was done. Then, turning to the old man, you were going to tell us why Sir Colin Shaw left so suddenly. Forbid, man, that I should say definite why he left. Not knowing for certain, said Mr. Judd, swelling with importance as he spoke. Oh, I never believed more half our what I hear and put no faith in tales whether master or man's, but by what I can make out an old Jimmy Judd can see through a stone wall as fur, as most folks, I should say as ghosts, was the bottom of the whole kick-up. Mr. Stackpole smiled at the old man's mode of expressing himself, and then looked anxiously toward her husband, who laughed heartily, and they left the dining room for the upstairs regions, which she was impatient to explore. "'They fled before ghosts, did they?' said Mr. Stackpole, still laughing at the idea. <laughs> "'If the house is supposed to be haunted, I should like it all the better, for its reputation.' And he swung open the door of a large, low room with a deep-protecting chimney-place and a wide window letting in a flood of sunshine. "'This is certainly a very cheerful aspect,' said his wife stepping to the window and looking out upon the wild garden enclosed by ragged yaw hedges. There is nothing ghostly about this room, at all events. (laughs) Pooh, Ghosts indeed! Those who believe in them deserve to see them, said Mr. Stackpole contemptuously. If we take the house, this shall be your morning room. You'll get plenty of sunshine, which is a great thing for you, and if I like the room under it, I will have it done up for a business room for myself. And they wandered from cellar to attic of the big house. Mr. Stackpole delighted with the possibilities of the place and noting in its pocketbook the dimensions in the chief rooms and of the entrance hall. At all events I shall inquire on what terms the house is to be let, he said after spending two hours in energetically inspecting the premises and as he slipped Five shillings into Mr. Judd's expectant palm. By the way, I have not asked who is the landlord. The landlord, sir. Be a many and not one. And the old man named a well-known city company to which the property belonged. I've rented from landlords and landladies and trustees, but never yet from a company. It's all one to me, and I shall see their agent in town tomorrow. Then, Mr. Stackpole took a farewell look at the room on that ground floor, immediately under the cheerful room at the head of the stairs that he had assigned to his wife's prospective use, and decided that it was exactly adapted to his requirements, after which they threaded their way back to the gates through the neglected maze of the garden. And how do you like the look of Harpleton Hall? He asked his wife as they drove away. What did you think of the old place? I confess that I was not very favourably impressed by it, though it is a handsome, well-built house and might be made very comfortable, no doubt. But it struck me with a kind of chill. So would any place, my dear. There had been a shut-up for seven years. I felt it in my back now. I wish it may not mean an attack of lumbargo for me. Mrs. Stackpole smiled at the literal interpretation of her words. I don't mean that kind of chill, but a sort of depressed, foreboding feeling that I have never had before in any of the houses you and I have been over together, and their name is Legion. Why, Anna? You don't mean to say that the tedious old sexton has frightened you with his gossip? It was merely some nonsense or other. He had made up to increase his importance. If I take the place... I shall put an army of workmen and another army of workmen in a week from now and when next you will see it with good fires drying the rooms, windows bright and clean and paperers and painters busy upon it, it will look very different, I can assure you. Any house that has been uninhabited as long as Harberton Hall wears a forlorn look, but for all that I see, the possibilities of it and I could make it the prettiest place we have lived in yet. And Mrs. Stackpole felt certain that her husband would take the old house. The following day, when Mr. Stackpole saw the company's agent, he was surprised at the very moderate rent asked for the house. Whether he wished to take it on lease or as a yearly tenant, the sum demanded was small enough to arouse suspicion in the most unwary. Why do you ask such a low rent? For a fine old place like that. It is so much out of repair for standing empty so long, that I suppose the company is willing to submit to a certain loss for the sake of having it inhabited again. But with such a temptingly low rent, how is it that it has not been taken long ago? There have been any number of applicants for it. Indeed. The old fellow in charge of the keys who showed me over the place yesterday said that no one had inquired about it for four years. A peculiar expression passed over the agent's face, but it was not one of surprise. He said so, did he? I've had plenty of inquiries. He certainly said so. He was a talkative old man, and anxious to impress us with the idea that Sir Eoland Shaw left Harberton Hall suddenly, some considerable time before his lease was up. In consequence of an absurd notion that the house was haunted. Now, personally, I care nothing about it, but my wife is sometimes nervous, and I thought I would ask you if you knew anything of any unusual circumstances connected with his leaving so abruptly. Judd is a chattering old fool. Did he tell you anything definite about it himself? asked the agent. Nothing whatever, but he says some nonsense about ghosts. Driving them away from the place. Of course, there was an absurd story that got about at the time. It was some hocus pocus with a magic lantern, I believe, got up by the young fellows to frighten the servants with pictures of a skeleton on a sheet hung up somewhere or other. The whole thing was a stupid practical joke, only too successful for the scare spread to the ladies of the house, and of course Sir Eolan had to leave. They made the place too hot for him, and the agent laughed (laughs) uproariously. I remember all about it, now you come to ask me. The young shawls got up the panic for their own purpose. They found the country too slow for them. They wanted to live in London, so with the simple apparatus of a magic lantern and a sheet or blind, they frightened the family back into town and got what they wanted. Naturally, Sir Aylund used not to speak of it when he found it out for no one is proud of having been made a fool of. And now, my dear sir, he said, assuming an air of great candor, you know as much about this childish folly as I do myself. It has been magnified into something wonderful till we've had that tempting property on our hands all these years in consequence. Mr. Statple was pleased and amused with the agent's frank explanation of the basis of Mr. Judd's mysterious illusions, and he and his wife laughed at it together over the evening dinner. Mrs. Stackpole was now willing that her husband should take Harbleton Hall, which she did as a yearly tenant, with the right of taking the property on a lease, if at the end of three years he felt inclined to prolong his stay. Then began all the delightful bustle that Mr. Stackpole so loved, the drying, warming, painting, lighting, decorating, and furnishing of the house itself, the taming and reclaiming of the garden, the stubbing up of old lawns and laying down of new turf the cleaning and regravelling of weed-grown paths. Such an army of workmen was engaged that Mr. Stackpole calculated that in less than five months the house would be ready to go into, and the garden to be all clean, smooth, and bare in their winter tidiness. It must be finished by the middle of December that I may keep Christmas here with my family. And if every man has done his work well and is out of the house by the 12th of December, I will give each one a bonus on his wages and a Christmas supper to you all. No wonder that the workmen caught something of Mr. Stackpole's enthusiasm, and that every time he brought his wife to see what was going on, she was delighted with the progress made. All their friends were informed of the lucky find of the beautiful old house in Surrey, and invitations were issued long before for a series of entertainments, dances, and private theatricals that they intended to have at Great Harburton Hall in the following January, when their daughter, Mrs. Belmont, and her husband would be staying with them. Shortly after Mr. and Mrs. Stackpole removed to Harburton Hall, they were dining out one evening, and after the ladies had left their room, and the gentlemen had rearranged their chairs comfortably, and were seated at their wine, Mr. Stackpole began on his favourite theme, the furnishing and repairing of the old house in Surrey. As most of those present had frequently heard him on the subject before, he was not much heeded and prosed on without interruption till a tall, bald-headed gentleman opposite him caught the word Harbleton Hall and became an attentive listener. Harbleton Hall, do you say? Do you mean the old garbled red-bricked house three miles from Mendleton in Surrey? I hope no friend of yours is thinking of taking it. Mr. Stackpole smiled. Not exactly a friend of mine, though probably I know him better than anyone else. I have taken Hobbleton Hall myself, and intend moving into it next December. The deuce you do, said the bold-headed gentleman, setting down his glass. I don't know why it should surprise you, said Mr. Stackpole. Surprise me? Certainly not. Only I thought that the house was empty and likely to remain so. Surely it has to empty long enough for seven years. It requires an immense deal doing to it. Of course, when I took a fancy to the place and am putting it into thorough repair, introducing the electric light among other modern improvements, in fact, I am sparing no expense. Do you know anything about Harpleton Hall? I used to. Sir Aeolan Shaw, the last tenant, is my brother. And the bald-headed gentleman spoke in a dry and uncommunicative manner, but a hint was not enough for Mr. Stackpole. Then you are the very person to tell me about an absurd story. I've heard it has something to do with a magic lantern, I believe. Some kind of scare the young people get up to to pretend there were boogies in the house and frighten their parents back to town, where they preferred to live. You see, I've heard all about it, and I only want it corroborating by a member of the family. And he laughed heartily, as though it was the best joke in the world. But the gentleman opposite him grew grave to severity, and said, I am unable to understand your allusion to a magic lantern performance, which is supposed to have tried my brother's nerves. And absurd is the last word applicable to the circumstances under which Sir Rowland was compelled to leave Harbleton Hall. (laughs) Then I must have been misinformed in the matter, replied the undaunted Mr. Stackpole, whose curiosity was now thoroughly aroused. As I am about to live in the house, will you not tell me the real circumstances that I may be able to contradict the foolish stories, the one here? Why should it be necessary for you to contradict gossip on the subject? Hmm? Sir Roland never mentions it. It is possible that sometime you may learn for yourself why my brother left the house. Then I think you will be satisfied that he acted wisely, and if not, I should be sorry to prejudice you against Harburton Hall. And the gentleman rose to join the ladies, and Mr. Statple remained in a state of mystification. Evidently something had happened to drive Sir Roland Shaw and his family from Harberton Hall, with which neither old Judd nor the agent was acquainted. What could it be? For himself, so long as it were neither rats nor drains, he did not care. But with his wife it was different. If she had the least inkling that there was anything uncanny about the house, she would refuse to go into it at the eleventh hour, or if she went, would make a point of seeing a ghost. The very first dark night. But she must hear no silly talk about it. Any ghosts that former inhabitants of the hall had imagined they saw was when they went about the house, starting at their own shadows, by the dim light of oil lamps. The electric light would put all that to rights. It was the best cure for such preposterous folly. And in its illumination, Mr. Stackpole felt that he should be more than a match for all the powers of darkness. But shortly after meeting Sir Roland Shaw's brother, an odd coincidence happened that drew his attention again to the subject of their conversation. Mrs. Stackpole had written to her son at Malta, telling him that his father had taken an old house in Surrey, with which he had fallen in love. How beautiful it was fitting it up. That they expected to keep Christmas in it, and that it was at Harberton Hall that they hoped to welcome him on his return to England. In reply, Jack wrote, So my father is again on the move. Well, this time, I am glad he is taking you to a thoroughly accessible place, and not to Cornwall or Cumberland. But is the old house he has taken a fancy to not far from Mendleton? I suppose there can't be two Harbleton halls in the country, but it is odd uh, if it is the house of that name I have heard lately something about. There was a young civilian out here for his health. He has gone to Egypt now. And he told me that his uncle, Sir Roland Smith of some such name, had been fairly driven out of an old house in Surrey by ghosts. I'm sure he called it Hobleton Hall. And he said that his uncle was not in the least a nervous man, but it was more than he could stand. And he had to leave. I wish now that I had asked him all about it. But he was such a dull chap, nothing he said interested me. So I lost the chance of learning particulars. Don't you be timid, dear mother. Let me tackle the bogeys when I come home. I should enjoy nothing better. Mrs. Stackpole did not like this at all. It produced an eerie and creepy sensation, and her husband took care not to increase her discomfort by telling her of his conversation with Mr. Shaw. It is odd, my dear, very odd, he said in his most cheerful tones, and we are obliged to confess that someone or other received some sort of fright in Harburton Hall. Nothing can be more vague, and yet, that is all that is known about it. A pity the whole silly business was not inquired into on the spot, for of course it would admit of a perfectly simple solution. Very likely, one of the maids has supped rather more heavily than usual on cold pork, and in a paroxysm of indigestion walked in her sleep. Someone saw her in a white nightgown, took her for a ghost, screamed, and got up a scare for it is always easier to cry out. And to investigate, and there you have it, the whole history of a ghost story in a nutshell, my dear, in a nutshell no less. The workmen were punctually out of Harbleton Hall on the day agreed upon, and as punctually received their pay and their Christmas supper, and the house was ready for the reception of the new tenant. With the good wishes of all who had helped to prepare it for him, Mr. Stackpole arranged that they should arrive after dark at Harbleton Hall, that he might surprise his wife with the electric light in every room and passage, and introduce her to her new home under its most cheerful and attractive aspect. As they approached the house, both Mrs. Stackpole and their daughter exclaimed with delight, and Ella said it was too pretty to be real. It was like something on a stage. From every window of the house, from the basement to the garret, streamed the pure radiance of the electric light, undimmed by curtain or blind, sending shafts of light far into the surrounding darkness. From the porch, the white light illumined the drive like a cold sunshine and showed every pebble on the ground and every twig on the bare boughs. There, my dear, said Mr. Stackpole triumphantly as he led his wife and daughter into the brilliant hall. This is how modern science drives away foolish fears of darkness by turning night into day. No one could be nervous or afraid of ghosts in a house lighted like this. No, indeed the thing would be impossible, replied Mr Stackpole, her daughter and son-in-law in confident chorus. Christmas was kept with much festivity at Harbelden Hall, and it was impossible to say who was most delighted with the house, the host or hostess or the guests under its hospitable roof. Each was charmed with his own room but Mrs. Stackpole's morning room was the general favourite. An afternoon tea was frequently taken there in preference to the more stately drawing room. The grandchildren played in the empty room upstairs and every evening watched the miracle of lighting in the house with electric light with breathless interest. They regarded Grandpapa as a light-producing wizard so that something of awe was mingled with their wildest frolics and they did not dare to open the door of his own particular room, which was respectfully called the study, though its principal use was to smoke in, or to take a quiet nap before dinner. It was the end of January, and the Stockpools were daily congratulating themselves on their good fortune in meeting with a house so perfectly suited to all their requirements. When they wound up their New Year's festivities with a fancy ball, several young people were staying in the house for the occasion who were to depart the day after the ball leaving their host and hostess alone for the first time in their new house. Numbers of guests were coming from a distance, many of whom accepted the invitation out of curiosity, as the dance afforded a good opportunity of spending a night under cheerful auspices in a house with a reputation of being haunted. All their entertainment so far had been successful, but the last was to be the best. And the host and hostess threw their whole souls into the preparations to ensure its complete success. The room was charming, the floor perfect, the band that came from town the most renowned of the season, the costumes to be worn were of no special time or country, and the stackpools themselves set an example of reckless Catholicity in the matter, the hostess being dressed as Queen Elizabeth, and her husband as the admiral of the fleet of today, while Mrs. and Mr. Beaumont figured respectively as a Japanese lady and Spanish matador. By the time that the guests had arrived, clad in the garb of all ages and countries, the ballroom appeared to contain such a motley throng as the Day of Judgment alone could bring together. Here an ancient Greek danced with a Swedish peasant, and the Black Prince with a female captain of the Salvation Army, and there a clown and a nun waltzed gaily past Mohammed and a ballet girl. The electric light was a greater novelty than it is now, and the guests were loud in their admiration of the fairy palace appearance, of the house as they approached, and of its brilliance within. Mr. Staple was as delighted as a child with a new toy, and led his friend about showing them how by merely turning a button on the wall, he could plunge a room into darkness, or flood it with radiant light. And this is where I'll stop for now. Part 1, the intro, The Shadow on the Blind. And I know it is a slow burner, but a good one. Written by Louisa Baldwin all the way back in 1895. Louisa Baldwin, sometimes called it Mrs. Alfred Baldwin, was an English novelist, poet, and writer of short stories. She was actually one of the uh, Macdonald sisters, so the aunt of the author Rudyard Kipling and the mother of the British Prime Minister, Stanley Baldwin. The Macdonald sisters were four Scottish women who became famous for the fact that all four of them married well-known men. Louisa's husband, Alfred Baldwin was a businessman and a member of the parliament of the conservative party. Louisa and Alfred's son, Stanley Baldwin, was elected British Prime Minister three times and holds the distinction of being the only British Prime Minister to serve under three monarchs, George V, Edward VIII and George VI. After the birth of her son Louisa Baldwin became plagued by bad health and spent much of her time in a bath chair. Louisa Baldwin died on the 16th of May 1925, and yes, we covered part one of her tale, The Shadow on the Blind. I really enjoyed playing each and every character in this episode and caught upon my hearings of Nigel Bruce and Basil Rathbone from the Sherlock Holmes and Watson episodes. Regarding the tottering Watson that was just super old and very silly as our main character, Mr. Stackpole. And I gotta say, he must have some seriously bad energy heading his way as he laughs and scoffs at the stories presented to him by those that owned the house before him. Now part 1, we see them enjoy the house, having a great time, learning about its history, whilst brushing all that old school history off, and indulging in the party going attitude of the Stackpools, but of course this is a horror story, and with part 2 just around the corner, I can't wait to see what Louisa Baldwin has in store for us. Thanks again for listening, if you want to support the show visit www.patreon.com sfgt, where you can get high-quality audio files, a place to chat with each other, and also mess around with artificial artwork from Mid Journey with me. A big thank you to divided by zero for letting me know about the situation with Mid Journey and AI art in general. Greatly appreciated, mate. Good to know you've got my back. Lots of love your way, buddy. Now I want to take the time to thank my superstars, those that support me through Patreon. Firstly, my colossal supporter, Matto Star, mate. You are a ray of sunshine that picked up the podcast and shimmies it straight around the world, then into space. Yep, your contribution to this podcast, buddy, is epic, and I'm stoked to have you as a supporter and pal. Thank you immensely for your support, Matto, and I'm putting that support into good use for some very special tales that I plan on narrating. Once I decide on some key elements, I'll be including you and Patreons in that info and update. Thank you immensely, mate. It's a joy to know you and my white tea warlord, King Leza Kong. Mate, thank you stupendously for being your awesome self and always supporting me, the bedrock of this podcast, buddy, and your kindness is not lost on me. Thank you so much, because with your support, I'm able to try out some new D-click filters on the audio this time around to test and see what I can cut out from the audio as pops and clicks. Each version they improve, but I still have to be careful not to cut out too much data. Anyway, enough of the techie talk. Thank you for your support and being a pal, you're a legend. And of course, the epic pepped in my steps superstars that put a bounce in my step every Monday, I'm lucky to have supporting me Chad Warren, Just Heather, Juicebox Andy, Peter Affele, Michelangelo Yacone, Divided by Zero, Leah Fasig, Alia Arcane, Solstra, and Paige Kramer. And Solstra, thank you so much for reaching out to me, you're awesome. Also, this goes out to all Patreon and listeners. You can hop onto Patreon and cast your vote in my weekly Patreon page poll, Mid Journey Madness. This is where I put some prompts up, you vote, and we'll see what the AI makes for us. Again, for anyone interested in becoming a Patreon, visit sfgt.com and become a legend like this lot. Now, when you find that right story, the one that's hunky-dory, the page that strikes you deeply, where the feeling resides sweetly, it's the storyteller's job to bring those thoughts to life. And I'm thankful for the time you spent and my chance to spark that light. Thank you, you amazing listeners, my friends, and my supporters alike. For your time today and the next, until next time, good night.